Jogcast. No fools, only horses. With Megan Argo, John Field, Libby Jones, Ian Morrison and Christina Smith. The Jogcast, April 2012 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Libby Jones and joining me today is Christina Smith. Hello. So we hope you enjoyed the National Astronomy Meeting specials. We had lots and lots of fun at NAM. Yeah, definitely did. Brilliant week. <laughs> and we hope you gave you a taste of what a national conference is like in astronomy. So because of all these little NAM specials we did, we have a slightly shorter show for you this month. In the show this time, we find out what you can see in the April night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, new results from Messenger, looking for life on Earth, and carbon in the early universe. Compared to the other terrestrial planets, surprisingly little is known about Mercury. The closest planet to the Sun, its daytime surface temperature can reach some 700 Kelvin, while temperatures on the night side of the planet can drop below 100 Kelvin. Observations from ground-based telescopes on the Earth reveal very little about Mercury, but since 2008, the Messenger spacecraft has been mapping the planet in detail, and March the 21st saw the publication of two studies using some of the data collected. Messenger, short for the Mercury Surface Space Environment Geochemistry and Ranging, is the first spacecraft to visit Mercury since Mariner 10 in the mid-1970s, and, after three flybys of the planet, the craft entered orbit on March 17, 2011, making it the first spacecraft ever to actually orbit Mercury. Among the many scientific goals of the mission, MESSENGER carries instruments to investigate the planet's surface composition, its geological history, and the structure of its magnetic field. On March 21, 2012, two papers were published in Science Express, detailing new results from some of MESSENGER's sensors. The first describes a new topographic model of the northern hemisphere of the planet, constructed using a laser altimeter to measure the changing height of the surface features as the spacecraft passed overhead on its orbital path. Mariner 10 photographed less than 50% of the surface during its three flybys more than 30 years ago, but MESSENGER is mapping the entire surface for the first time, and in much greater detail. Using the new maps from the laser altimeter, the research team have identified features which indicate that Mercury was tectonically active on a large scale for much of its history. Mercury has a large, dense core, much larger relative to the diameter of the planet than that of the Earth, and does not currently experience active plate tectonics in the way the Earth does. The new topographic maps, however, show evidence of large-scale movements on the planet's crust relatively recently. In the early life of the solar system, there were large numbers of small bodies and asteroids which would frequently collide with planets, creating some of the impressive craters we see today. One such crater on Mercury is the Caloris Basin, a giant impact feature 1,500 kilometres in diameter. The basin was somewhat filled in with fresh lava after the impact, creating a flat floor within the circular crater walls. The new topographic data from MESSENGER show that there is a large-scale slope across much of the northern hemisphere of the planet, and in some places the flat lava plain of the Caloris Basin floor has been raised by this slope so that it is actually higher than parts of the older surrounding crater rim. Since lava settles at a constant height above the centre of gravity, much like water in a glass, this height difference across the basin implies that the large-scale geological event which caused the hemisphere-wide slope happened after the early period of heavy bombardment in the solar system. The second paper describes a new model of Mercury's magnetic field, calculated using spacecraft tracking data from NASA's network of ground station facilities, a series of satellite dishes used for tracking and communication with spacecraft in the solar system. 
By regularly tracking Messenger during the first few weeks after it entered orbit around Mercury in March 2011, the team have been able to build up a detailed model of the gravitational anomalies in Mercury's crust. These anomalies are places where there are variations in the density of the rock below the surface, which affect the orbit of the spacecraft as it passes overhead, and they can be used to build up a picture of the internal structure of the planet. Based on these new observations, the model proposed by the researchers includes a solid silicate crust and mantle overlying a dense silicate-rich layer and an iron-rich liquid outer core, and perhaps a solid inner core. This new model is somewhat different to that expected from our knowledge from the other terrestrial planets, and the researchers point out that these new results will mean changes for models of Mercury's evolution. Many hundreds of extrasolar planets are now known, with more being discovered all the time, but so far we know very little about them individually. One thing of particular interest in the search for life elsewhere in the universe is determining the contents of exoplanetary atmospheres. This can be attempted by observing the light reflected from a particular planet, and looking for absorption features in the spectrum of the light due to chemicals such as methane, water, and oxygen. Such studies are difficult, however, because the light reflected from a planet is much, much fainter than the light from its parent star. But now, in a study published in Nature on February the 29th, a team of researchers have tested a way to search for the signatures of life on other worlds by using observations of our own planet. The team, led by Michael Sturzik of the European Southern Observatory in Santiago, Chile, used the 8.2-metre Very Large Telescope to observe Earthshine, sunlight which has been reflected from the daylight side of the Earth up to the Moon and back again. Using a telescope the size of the VLT to observe the Moon may sound like overkill, but this is the first time that an observational technique has been able to detect evidence of vegetation on a planet. The trick to the technique lies in measuring the polarisation of the light, the orientation of the oscillations of the light waves, and how this polarisation changes with wavelength across a spectrum. Light transmitted directly from a star is much brighter than that reflected from a planet, but the starlight itself is unpolarised. Light reflected from a planet, on the other hand, is partially polarised, and the two signals can be separated. The form of the polarisation depends on the nature of whatever surface reflected the light, and on the characteristics of the planet's atmosphere. By using these observations of Earthshine, the researchers were able to determine the fraction of the Earth's surface which was covered by clouds, oceans and vegetation. The researchers made two sets of observations, the first on April the 25th, the second on June 10th, 2011. The alignment of the Earth-Moon-Sun system was different during the two observations, with different parts of the Earth's surface responsible for reflecting light up to the Moon. The differences in the data collected during the observing sessions show significant differences. In the results from April there is a strong feature due to vegetation, but this feature is not present in the data from June, suggesting that very little of the reflected light came from cloud-free forested regions on the Earth's surface. The observations provide a valuable means of testing theoretical models of Earth-like exoplanets, in preparation for future telescopes which may be able to carry out similar, but far more tricky observations for other planetary systems. Finding evidence of life is one thing, but proving the existence of intelligent life is, of course, quite another. And finally, among the exciting results presented at the UK's National Astronomy Meeting in March, held this year in Manchester, was the discovery of a vast amount of gas and dust around a supermassive black hole in the very early universe. In a talk on March the 28th, team leader Bram Venemans of the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Heidelberg presented the new results. The European team used the IRAM interferometer, an array of radio telescopes which detect emission at millimetre wavelengths, to observe a galaxy known as J1120 plus 0641, 
a galaxy so far away that the light we detect here on the Earth today left the galaxy when the universe was a mere 740 million years old, one-eighteenth of its current age. The observations showed a surprising amount of carbon, an element created mainly in the nuclear fusion reactions which power stars. Since carbon is created in stars and distributed throughout galaxies in violent supernova explosions, there was not expected to be large amounts of carbon this early in the history of the universe. The presence of such large quantities of dust and carbon-rich gas this early in the universe's history adds to the evidence that there was a massive burst of star formation in the relatively short time between the Big Bang and the time the light from this galaxy was emitted. The amount of dust detected shows that this particular galaxy was forming stars at a rate 100 times higher than the star formation rate in our own Milky Way today. Thanks for that, Megan. And now for a man where national is not good enough. It's the international Ian Morrison who tells us what you can see in the northern night sky. The April night sky. Let's just start with the heavens. After sunset, over in the west, you'll see the lovely constellation of Orion. Up to its right is Taurus with the Pleiades and Hyades clusters. Above is a bright yellow star called Capella in the constellation of Auriga. So along the plain of the Milky Way, it contains some very nice open clusters. Over to the left are the two stars Castor and Pollux of Gemini. As the evening draws on, Leo the lion is seen fairly high in the south with its bright star Regulus. Down to the left of Leo and rising later in the evening is the constellation of Virgo. Its brightest star is Spica. And between Spica and the back end, shall we say, of Leo the Lion, is a lovely region, partly in Virgo, partly in Coma Berenices, called the Realm of the Galaxies, where on a really dark night, when given a reasonable-sized telescope, you can pick out quite a number of what we call faint fuzzies, galaxies such as M84 and M87, as catalogued by Charles Messier. There'll be a bright star seen up towards the east, that's Arcturus, at the bottom of the constellation of Bootes. And just to the left is a beautiful little arc of stars called Corona Borealis, the Northern Crown. High above Leo, towards the north, is the constellation of Ursa Major, the Great Bear, with the bright stars forming what we call the Plough, but the Americans call the Big Dipper. The middle star of the handle you'll see, possibly with your unaided eye, but certainly with binoculars, is a double system called Alcor and Mizar. The brighter Mizar is actually a double star itself, so this makes a very nice object in a small telescope. Finally, as the night draws on, the constellation of Hercules is rising in the east, and you may, in the northeast, see a bright star. That's Vega in the constellation of Lyra. Hercules is perhaps best known for a very nice globular cluster called M13 that lies on the right-hand side of what is called the keystone, made up of the four brightest stars. So there's quite a lot to look at in the sky, and of course we have some planets this month. Well, Jupiter is now close to the end of its current apparition, but it can still be seen below Venus, low in the western sky after sunset, as April begins. 
It then sets about two and a half hours after sun, but this drops to just three quarters of an hour by month's end. With a magnitude of minus two, it's about two and a half magnitudes less bright than Venus. It still shows an angular size of 34 arc seconds, so a small telescope should see the equatorial bands and the four Galilean moons. But of course, with a low elevation, our view will be somewhat hindered. Saturn rises about one hour after sunset at the beginning of April. It reaches opposition on April the 15th, which means it'll be roughly due south at midnight UT, at an elevation of about 32 degrees. It's in Virgo, shining at magnitude plus 0.3, some 5 degrees slightly up and to the left of the first magnitude star Spica. Sadly, in contrast to Jupiter, Saturn is heading to the more southerly parts of the ecliptic, so for quite some considerable time will not be seen high above the horizon from our northern climes. However, the rings have opened out somewhat, and they're now about 14 degrees to the line of sight, and so will appear appreciably wider than when we saw them at the last apparition. In fact, this angle actually drops to 13 degrees and continues to do so by the end of the month and beyond. So it's well worth having a look at its 19 arc second disc and ring system. Come back to Saturn in the highlights. Well, we had a good apparition of Mercury last month, but this month, though it reaches its greatest elongation towards the east from the Sun on April the 18th, at dawn the ecliptic has a very low angle to the horizon, so its elevation will be very low, and binoculars will be needed to see it, perhaps half an hour before sunrise, shining at magnitude plus 0.2. And to be frank, I don't think it's worth getting up for. Mars reached opposition on March the 3rd, so as April begins, it's now well up in the evening sky, lying just 5 degrees to the left of Regulus, in Leo. As it ends its retrograde motion, that's moving westwards across the sky on April the 15th, it's barely seen to move against the stars during the month, but its brightness fades from magnitude minus 0.7 to minus 0.1. At the same time, its angular diameter shrinks from just over 12 arc seconds down to 10 arc seconds. But still, given the night of good seeing, it should be possible to see some markings on the surface. Well, finally, Venus. It made a very nice grouping with Jupiter last month, and even the uh, television programmes highlighted it. Well, it's still very prominent in the southwestern sky after sunset. Its angular separation from the Sun at the start of the month is about 45 degrees, and it's actually 41 degrees above the horizon at sunset. That's about as high an elevation as it ever gets, so it's a good time to observe it. In fact, the values only reduce to 39 degrees away from the Sun and 34 degrees elevation throughout the whole of the month. Such a high apparition only happens once every eight years. Its angular size is increasing, from 25 to 36 arc seconds. But as it does so, the phase, which is the percentage that we see illuminated, is falling from 48 to 37%. And one result of that is that the brightness stays remarkably constant at magnitude minus 4.5 to minus 4.7 throughout the month. If you observe Venus through a deep blue filter, you may just 
see a hint of cloud structure in its atmosphere, but it's pretty subtle. So finally, let's go to the highlights of the month. Well, we'll start with April the 3rd, when Venus passes very close to the Pleiades cluster, making a very nice celestial event to view or image. This year, it passes just below and to the left of the brightest stars of the cluster, passing just half a degree away from Alcyon. Eight years into the future, in 2020, it will come closer still, and in 2028, will pass through the centre of the Pleiades cluster. Something to look out for early in the month. Well, Saturn, of course, is at its best this month. We see it throughout much of the evening. As the rings are now open, at least to some extent, we have a good chance to actually split them to see the outer A ring, the inner B or bright ring, which is separated by Cassini's division. Any small telescope should show that. If you've got an 8-inch aperture telescope, or perhaps more, and a night of good seeing, you may also spot Encke's division towards the outer edge of the A-ring, and maybe the rather faint crepe ring within the bright ring. A small telescope obviously will easily show its largest moon, Titan, but you may well spot some of the others as well. At the moment, we're seeing the northern hemisphere of Saturn best. As it orbits the Sun every 29.4 years, for half the orbit, because of the tilt of its rotation axis, we see the northern aspect, the other half we see the southern. It has got some bands, dark bands and lighter regions, similar to Jupiter, but they're not nearly so prominent. The belts are probably warmer gases low down in the atmosphere, whilst the brighter zones are thought to be ice crystals or clouds in the upper, colder atmosphere. Well, we do have one meteor shower this month. It's called the Lyrid meteor shower. It's on the night of the 22nd, 23rd of April. And it's a good night because it's very close to new moon, so we won't have any moonlight to hinder our view. It is a reliable, but not particularly spectacular shower, with typically just 15 meteors per hour. They appear to come from towards the constellation of Lyra the Lyre, hence the name Lyrids, and there's a nice little chart on the night sky page of the Jodrellbank website, which will show you exactly where to look. Observations will probably be best after about 1am in the morning, when Vega and Lyra have got well up into the sky. The dust particles that make up the shower were released, and are being released, by the comet Thatcher. Not Margaret Thatcher, but it was discovered in 1861. Now, occasionally we pass through a dense clump of particles, as happened in 1982, when over 90 metres per hour were seen. So you never know, it could happen again. So it's worth waking up to have a look at about 1 to 2 a.m., should it be expected to be clear. Look towards the east. Vega will be dominating that part of the sky. There's a nice grouping of Saturn's moons on April the 19th, again around new moon. So if it's clear, you might have a good chance to see several of its moons. Little charts given on the night sky page. And on April the 30th, after sunset, you can see Mars, below Leo, and a nine-day-old moon. 
looking like a salmon pink little disc lying close to Regulus. Finally, on April the 24th, a thin crescent moon will hang in the sky well below Venus. When the crescent is very thin, there's a reasonable chance, with binoculars or a telescope, or even with your eyes, of seeing what's sometimes called the old moon in the new moon's arms. Basically, it's light reflected back from the Earth onto the surface of the dark side, shall we say, of the moon. It's quite a nice thing to see. So I hope that and many of the other things that we have in the sky this month will make it a very worthwhile month for your observing. Thanks for that, Ian. And now, John Field tells us what you can see in the southern night sky. Welcome to the April Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Over the last month, our daylight hours have continued to get shorter as we have passed the autumnal equinox, and will continue to do so until the winter solstice in June. In our evening sky, Venus is a brilliant star appearing low in the northwest at dusk. It sets about two hours after the sun, and in a telescope it will appear like a crescent. Nearby is Jupiter, even lower towards the west, and it will be briefly visible in the twilight sky. Venus is 85 million kilometres away from us by mid-month, and is beginning to move between us and the Sun, whilst Jupiter is moving behind the Sun. Mars is the red-orange star midway up in the northern sky. In April, it can be found beside Regulus, the brightest star in Leo. Mars is now fading and getting smaller in a telescope as we leave it behind. By mid-month, it will be 125 million kilometres away from us. A telescope will reveal a tiny disk. Saturn appearing as a bright yellow star is midway up the eastern sky at dusk. It is below a white star called Spica, which is the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo. Pointing a telescope at Saturn with a magnification of 20 times or greater will reveal the planet's famous rings. Saturn will appear as a slightly flattened yellow globe. Careful observation may reveal faint bending on the planet's disk. The sixth planet from the Sun, Saturn is a gas giant weighing in at 100 times the mass of the Earth. Made mostly of hydrogen at 96% and helium at 3%, the overall density of Saturn is less than that of water, compared to our planet, planet Earth, at five times the density. One of the most striking features of Saturn is the system of rings that surround the planet. The rings will also reveal bending and maybe one or two dark gaps. Perseverance, clear skies and good optics will increase your chances of seeing the fainter detail. Its largest moon, Titan, the second largest in the solar system, may be visible as a bright star nearby. This moon has a dense atmosphere and will have an orange hue in view through your telescope. By midnight, Saturn will be high in the northern sky and at its best for viewing. The constellation of Virgo is a rather faint rectangle lying on its side. Spica at magnitude 0.98 is the brightest star in the constellation. Being far from the Milky Way, Virgo is a prime target for the hunting of galaxies. One of the easiest and most famous galaxies can be found 10 degrees west of Spica and is known as the Sombrero Galaxy. At magnitude 9, this galaxy can be seen as a smudge in binoculars from a dark sky site. An 8-inch or greater telescope is needed to resolve any features. Sitting above Spike is a distinct group of 4 to 7 stars forming the shape of a kite. This is Corvus the Crow, a small constellation. Alpha Corva is a magnitude 4 star, whilst Beta and Gamma are much brighter, shining at magnitudes 2.7 and 2.6. Delta is a wide double, easily split with a small telescope. The fifth star is much dimmer than the others, and it may have actually decreased in brightness since Bayer lettered it in 1603. There are few objects visible from small telescopes in this part of the sky. 
The ancient Greeks called this constellation the Raven. In legend, Corvus is associated with the neighbouring constellations of Crater, the Cup, and Hydra, the Water Snake. The crow was sent by Apollo, the sun god, to return with a cup of water, but instead it dallied to eat figs. For its failure to do its ask, Apollo banished the crow into the sky where it is sitting next to Crater and Hydra. Hydra, the largest of the 88 modern constellations, has a group of five stars forming its head, along with a long path of stars forming its body. As with Corvus, there are a few objects for binoculars or telescopes in this region of the sky. One of the few is M83, the southern pinwheel galaxy. From a dark sky site, M83 is visible in binoculars at magnitude 7.5, but a telescope reveals more detail. Larger telescopes reveal the spiral arms which gives the galaxy its name. Looking towards our eastern sky, we see our winter constellation Scorpius rising. The brightest star in Scorpius is Antares, the rival of Mars, shining at magnitude 1. Depending on the list, it is either the 15th or 16th brightest star in our night sky. Antares is a red giant star. It has a surface temperature of 3000 degrees, which gives it a reddish hue. This colour gave rise to its name as the rival of Mars, and with Mars in our evening sky, it is a good chance to compare the colours. Here in New Zealand, we do not get scorpions, so to the Māori and Polynesians, they saw something more familiar in their everyday lives out of these stars. A great fishing cock, we called it Timatau of Māori. Antares is called Rehua, which means the fiery one, and it is seen as a drop of blood that Maui put onto the hook for going fishing. This great hook was in fact one of the jawbones of one of Maui's great ancestors, and as he fished here in the southern hemisphere, he caught a mighty fish. It took such a huge pull to get the fish up out of the ocean that the hook flew up into the sky, forming the hook of Maui. The North Island New Zealand is known as the fish of Maui, Te Ika of Maui, and this was the fish he pulled up out of the ocean. Many thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you have clear skies and great observing. Thanks for that, John. Now, on to the feedback. And we just want to say thank you for all the tweets and likes on Facebook. And we're not going to round up all of the feedback that we've had over the last couple of weeks. But if you do want to send in some more feedback, please do. You can do that via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can also send us posts and the address for that is on the website. So that about wraps it up for this shortened jodcast show. The editors were Mark Perver, Megan Argo and Claire Bretherton. And the producer was Libby Jones. Until next time, jod on. Bye. Bye.